0: Welcome to Value Investing, The Starvine Way, where my goal is to help you learn more about value investing and compounding wealth with a long-term focus. We will accomplish this by sharing a mix of monologues and conversations. I'm your host, Stephen Coe, founder of Starvine Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as investment advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek advice that reflects their personal financial situation. In this week's episode, we feature Jonathan Baird, creator of the Global Investment Letter. As far as investment letter authors go, Jonathan brings a unique and well-rounded perspective due to his 30-year career as a money manager. During that time, he won a Lipper Award in 2010 for the best global equity fund in Canada. More recently, Jonathan made a prescient call in early March 2020 when, based on his analysis, he advised clients to sell out of equities. He is among a select few to see ahead of the sharp curve and make that call and we are all living through what started to transpire shortly afterward. Thank you, John, for joining today.
1: It's my pleasure, Stephen. So on
0: your very timely recommendation to sell out of equities on March 5th, 2020, what were the drivers and developments that led you to pull the trigger?
1: There were, there were a couple of principal ones. Number one is while I was bullish in early 2020, I was growing more and more cautious because I saw increasing levels of investor complacency. And that was being reflected in a variety of sentiment indicators. For example, the, uh, the volatility index, the VIX, which plays a large role in my market analysis, was registering an unusual level of investor complacency. And when that happens, I, I'm always looking for uh, the potential for market reversals. So, I, I, so as we were moving into late January, early February, I was growing increasingly cautious. But then as I was reading more and more accounts of the coronavirus uh, pandemic in China and the fact that it had already uh, made some serious impacts in continental Europe, I could see that, the, the, you know, based on my, my reading, uh, you know, in history of the Spanish flu and, and pandemics just generally, I could see that this was unlikely just to be an isolated uh, phenomenon and that this was going to have quite an impact, particularly since we saw the Chinese shutting down cities and so on in, in January. So the combination of uh, investor complacency And the fact, you know, it was fairly clear to me that the coronavirus was going to be a major problem prompted me. I started talking about it, potential effects of the coronavirus in the February issue. But it wasn't until the uh, March 5th issue that I I actually advised clients basically to sell all equities and to move into uh, U.S. Treasury notes, the 10-year notes. And that obviously worked out pretty well. And
0: what a call that was. So here we are late in summer 2020 and we've seen quite uh, the rebound. So how would you describe what's happened since?
1: Well, I I have to admit that I was certainly surprised by the strength of the rebound. I expected one because of the the oversold position that was produced in, in March. And I also recognize that the stimulus action of the Federal Reserve and other central banks, what was going to produce a reaction in the markets. However, I wasn't prepared for the extent of the rebound. And where we are now in the summer, and we're getting into late summer, and the markets are relatively quiet, certainly compared to what they were earlier, I'm seeing, uh, once again, evidence of investor complacency, and also a real disconnect between the economic rebound that is being reflected in equity markets versus what I'm seeing in the underlying economy. The equity markets are pricing in a a very sharp V-shaped economic rebound. I've not subscribed to that point of view. It's never happened before in in history from such a sharp recession. I'm suggesting that we're probably more likely to see some kind of a W bottom and eventually an economic rebound, but it will not be as easy or as quick as, uh, the equity markets are are reflecting right now so i'm expecting as we move into the fall that there are a number of catalysts at place the u.s election of uh, the markets the investment uh, complacency that i spoke of there are a variety of catalysts at play that could see and i'm expecting renewed market volatility in the fall and while that's going to produce risks i also see it as a as an opportunity That will be presented as well so uh, volatility from my standpoint produces volatility produces opportunities we just have to guard against the risks and trying to take advantage of the opportunities that the market does offer
0: with this uh, v-shaped recovery we've had in stock prices i understand there's quite a concentrated aspect to this and because after all these indexes are market weighted and i've seen some of your stats which are a bit of a cause for concern, I'd say, especially with the S and P and Nasdaq.
1: Yes, the markets have gotten you know narrower and uh, narrower, and, and and the leaders in the market, uh, both the Nasdaq and the S and P 500, you know, have gotten quite narrow. Now, historically, that is typical of a late-stage uh, market move. We've seen that through history, and I incorporate market history into my. Uh, analysis it has proven to be a pretty reliable tool for me so that's not surprising and uh, what it does say is that we're getting to the later stages you know we saw the same thing in uh, 1999-2000 with the internet bubble where you had the technological innovation of the internet focusing capital on a relatively small number of internet related companies What we're seeing now is a little bit different. Certainly, the tech companies are dominating among the leaders, but there are a couple of things this time that is a bit unique to this cycle. One of them is the presence of a huge amount of capital being directed into the large cap stocks by passive investing strategies. And that is over now, about 50% of capital going into uh, markets is associated with capital invest with passive investing strategies which is essentially index fund buying and index funds typically don't buy all of the stocks of an index Uh, they typically buy a portion of them that effectively mimics the return of the entire index because that's more that's just more efficient for them and i put out a chart earlier this year showing that you can buy roughly about 80 of the largest companies in the S&P 500 and effectively mimic the return of the, of the index. So that's why you're seeing more and more money getting poured into the Fang stocks and Microsoft and so on. The other thing that's also produced this phenomenon in 2020 is the presence of a new generation of retail investors and slash day traders and uh, using apps such as Robinhood and so on Uh, And they're focusing and while they're small, you know, individually in aggregate, they represent quite a bit of capital going into a relatively small number of uh, stocks. And so we're seeing um, we're seeing that phenomenon also driving the FANG stocks and in particular uh, Tesla, which is a which is a big favorite of the uh, sort of the new generation of retail investor.
0: Right. So you point out some of these mega cap shall we call them, tech companies, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, so that makes up the FANG, plus M. I think I've seen one of your stats that just those six names comprise, I think, was it 25% of the S&P?
1: Well, actually, I think the, the FANG plus Microsoft and Tesla, This I'll give you an even more astounding stat than that, uh, Stephen, is those stocks, represent 49% of the Nasdaq 100 index. Shocking. Yeah, it certainly is to me. The Nasdaq typically leads the other indices in the United States both in bull and bear markets. So clearly, you know, the large components of the of the Nasdaq 100, many of which are also in the S&P 500, you know, are really driving the market. We're even more concentrated in terms of uh, market leadership today than we were back during the internet bubble at the turn of the century.
0: Sounds a little worrisome.
1: So Uh, yeah.
0: Well, with this trend then, it's been going on for a while now and it almost seems like a virtuous cycle, especially with passive investing. It charges low fees. It's done well, driven a lot by these mega cap tech companies. So where do you see a possible tipping point or a
1: catalyst being? I think I, I agree with you. I mean it uh, to some extent it's uh, it's a virtuous circle particularly with the passive investing because it's just the, these strategies effectively pay no attention to valuation or or the traditional investment merits that you know we would be looking at it and evaluating a company it's basically buying an index and the the index strategy you know was initially a good idea because most money managers don't match the indices. I luckily was fortunate that I managed to outperform in my career, but 80% of managers typically don't. And also you could make the case that investors can uh, save money on fees. So from that standpoint, it was a good idea. Unfortunately, the idea has grown in such proportions that has effectively warped the behavior of markets. And in terms of what is likely to change that, uh, I think it will probably take a fairly uh, concerted bear market or market pullback to cause people to reconsider. Because one of the one of the dangers that I've identified with passive investing is it tends to produce a generation of unsophisticated investors who l- leave all of the uh, that the tasks of you know, sort of being informed about their own investments to uh, the passive investment managers. And so that lack of sophistication also makes them psychologically vulnerable to a severe market pullback. And by that, I mean that when they experience that, for many, it will be the first experience of that. And that might induce them to uh, panic selling. So one one of the concerns that I do have the popularity of passive investing is that if we did get a fairly sharp, longer-lived bear market, the the effect of it could be exaggerated by uh, you know the crowd mentality of passive investors starting to sell, and then that would and then you'd have that virtuous circle going in reverse. We're not there yet, but it's not beyond the the realm of uh, a possibility, particularly. You know, if I'm correct about the fact that the V recovery is more likely to turn into a, a W. There's a variety of concerns. And once again, uh, one of the points I'd like to make, Stephen, is that psychology is such a major uh, factor in the markets and, and in investing, just as it is in life. And so right now, uh, we're at a stage where we're, we're seeing, you know, a considerable amount of complacency and trust in the Fed. That can change, and, and those contagious changes in psychology are what produce sharp market reverses, and it also produces bull markets. But uh, right now, the markets are, you know, are, are priced more for uh, you know, a sunny tomorrow you know, than a, a longer-lived uh, economic recovery. Right. And so on the way up, you point
0: out that a very small handful of names have benefited at least their share prices disproportionately on the way up. So could it be said that on the way down that those same names will take the brunt of a decline or how do you see this playing out for the everyday investor who perhaps is not even in those high-flying names?
1: Yes, Stephen. I think by definition because they comprise so much of the index that if we, we are going to see, you know, another market pullback, that those companies will uh, be the leaders in in the down move. And so, yes, uh, you know, it's a double-edged sword with these companies, which which effectively right now are momentum stocks. I mean, you know, companies like Google and Microsoft and, and Amazon, they're all fine businesses, but the businesses have to be separated from what stock price is saying about the valuation and so on. And when you have everyone basically running to one side of the boat, uh, which is what's happening now with the concentration of capital moving into the Fang stocks and Microsoft and so on, then they're going to be susceptible for a, uh, a pullback. You know, certainly a, a stock like Tesla is kind of the poster child of a bubble stock for this cycle. You know, as we as we record this, uh, it's expected that they're going to be. Included into the S&P 500, uh, and they just announced a five-for-one stock split. Well, the uh, the inclusion of Tesla into the S&P 500 is probably going to give Tesla another boost up as passive investing money moves into into that stock, uh, and even more retail money moves in. But an axiom of mine is a go- a good idea would be to look for an opportunity to sell after a stock. Has been just added into the S and P 500. That that initial uh, rush of capital into it is not likely to be sustained once it's been in the uh, the index.
0: Right. So in other words, when a stock like Tesla gets added to the index, you'll see forced buying as index funds have to buy it, and that has nothing to do with valuation.
1: No, that's absolutely right. I mean, that's that's you know that's one of the. Uh... That's one of the troubling things about the current market environment you know, for somebody like me who you know, started managing money in the 1980s and was able to uh, just uh, use fundamental analysis to outperform the market. That strategy right now, anyway, isn't working because of the presence of, of passive investing and, and also this generation of newly minted generation of retail investors who are basically chasing momentum. So the current market environment you know, isn't really sensitive to uh, valuation metrics and so on. It's all about capital flows. And I must say that that the analysis of capital flows does play a large role in, in my own market analysis because that's a tool that you can use not only with stock markets, but in commodity markets and bond markets and so on. Ultimately, capital flows do reflect where asset prices are likely to go. The, the thing is, the capital flows can be generated by a variety of different strategies. In this case, the capital flows going into uh, the fang stocks and, and, and so on, driven by largely by passive investors and, and small retail investors.
0: How then would you recommend long-term investors protect themselves uh, in this environment?
1: Well, one, you know, one of the things is that I don't think we, any of us anymore or shouldn't uh, have the luxury of being passive investors. I think that one way or the other, we all should become active investors. And in terms of just uh, taking an interest in our own portfolios and, and learning enough about what's going on to either do it ourselves or find a good advisor to manage your money, but still know enough to be able to ask that person intelligent questions. So one way or the other, whether we do it ourselves, or we we find somebody to manage the money for us, I think we all need to be uh, active investors. And certainly my view has always been getting a good advisor to advise you with your money. If you, if, you know, if you're not inclined to have the time or the inclination to do yourself more than pays for itself. I mean, it's an investment in itself and frankly that's you know that's part of what the global investment letter seeks to do as well is provide people with another part of their investment team to provide information and opinion and so on that to help them form fill out their own view of the investment world but i think that we're moving into a, an era here in this decade where because of geopolitical and economic factors none of us have the luxury of being passive anymore. And, and, and frankly, Stephen, I don't think passive really works in any aspect of life. You know, we shouldn't be passive with our health or with our friendships or, you know, and so on. Anyway, that's just my thought on that. Agree. Those are some very uh, good points uh, that, uh, that links it to
0: other parts of life as well.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the, one of the things, Stephen, and I'm sure I, I think you'd agree with that as well, is. One of the things about the investment business is, you know, besides the the financial aspect of it, one of the, the attractions of the investing and so on is that for people that are curious about the world, that want to understand what's going on, it, it is very enjoyable because it's we get rewarded for understanding what's uh, what's happening in the world. And for those of us that are, you know, curious about, you know, the world around us, Investing also is an outlet to, to help satisfy that, uh, that, that interest as well.
0: It's this lifelong interest and hobby. Uh, I'd like to say no one can ever truly master it, and that's what makes it so challenging and enjoyable.
1: Well, I certainly haven't mastered it, Stephen. That's why, I'm, uh, that's why I get up every day uh, trying to get a little bit better. Same here. You and
0: me both. So, Do you have any advice... For investors out there, in terms of good habits or behavioral changes that would better their long-term well-being,
1: I, I, you know, I do. I think you know, just touching on what I was talking about earlier about being an active investor, one of the things that I would encourage everybody to do is is read. You know, read books on on investing. Also, read more widely. Read history and and current events and so on to understand you know, sort of what, what's going on in the world around us, both economically and otherwise, because the geopolitical situation, you know, in the world right now is going to have a much bigger uh, impact on investment returns in this decade than it has in, in, in the previous decades. And then that's one of the things that I, that is one of the themes of the Global Investment Letter where I, where I do pay attention to that. So, you know, read widely, Just try and, you know, accumulate as much general knowledge uh, about investing and and current events and so on. The other thing too, I would say, is we should all be aware of our own uh, psychology as human beings. And one of the things that we should do, you know, while, you know, during the investment process and so on, is just check with ourselves to see, okay, how are are we feeling? You know, am I feeling fearful? Am I feeling greedy? Uh, Am I feeling uncertain and so on? And we'll just sort of check to see, you know, how we're doing and watch, you know, and watch out for extremes in, you know, in our emotions or our uh, psychology, because typically the best thing to do is to do the opposite of, you know, our, our extreme emotional tendency. I mean, and that's why it's been so profitable, you know, in the course of history to be a contrarian you know, when everyone is selling it, that's often the time to buy and vice versa. The market is basically, you know, a collection of human psychology, crowd psychology, and certainly as individuals, and I, I count myself, you know, certainly among those, is I have to also just sort of check with myself to see, okay, you know, sort of, you know, uh, am I being properly sort of objective about an investment or or analysis and so on. So those two things, reading and just being aware of our own psychology, I think are very good starts for for anybody. I
0: think that's just wonderful advice coming again from someone who's had decades managing with a a bottom-up approach. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have. It was such a pleasure talking to you, Jonathan. Thanks for making the time. It was uh, my pleasure, Stephen. If you would like to learn more about our guest, Jonathan Baird and the Global Investment Letter please visit GlobalInvestmentLetter.com. There you will be able to access commentary and sample issues and subscribe to his publication. So what are the key takeaways here? I like how Jonathan supports his thoughts with historical context. As he pointed out, there is reason to be cautious from a variety of angles. The capital flows into passive investing strategies has created what looks to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Money flows into ETFs, which can be largely mimicked by owning the largest companies. So those few stocks rise, gain more support from momentum investors, which attracts more capital to ETFs, and that capital disproportionately flows into those largest names. And on and on. This has led to 49% of the NASDAQ, as Jonathan has stated, or just about half of that index being comprised of only a small handful of companies. Most of these companies are also in the S&P 500, and so that index has also benefited disproportionately from the surge in so-called "fang" stocks. Going back to Jonathan's observation, this pattern of narrowing tends to happen late in the cycle. I realize Warren Buffett is a big proponent of indexing, but I wonder if he would recommend that strategy at this moment. The idea of indexing implies great diversification, which is hard to say is being achieved by buying into the S&P and especially the NASDAQ, being as concentrated as they are after the enormous run in tech companies. Keep in mind that those indexes are market value weighted and driven by the share price performance of the companies, which may be a byproduct of how fast the companies are growing organically, but it could also be the result of sectors becoming overvalued. My thoughts on this may seem self-serving given I am an active manager. When I say that one should be cautious with buying index funds, they may charge fees that are next to nothing, but investors should still care about what is in them. Citing the same example, if you were to buy an index fund today, replicating the NASDAQ, without doing any work, would you be comfortable knowing about half of your funds are in seven tech stocks that have shot up a lot? Maybe or maybe not. The point, again, is that you should care about what you're buying. I have no conviction on when and if this trend ends, or if ultimately it collapses on its own weight. In hindsight, spending time trying to predict a reversal in these trends would have been an unwise use of time, and disastrous to those who decided to short those stocks. I would advise everyone to look at those FANG stocks, and Tesla, and even smaller cap tech names that have run up hard, and think very, very carefully about the remaining upside and downside if growth expectations are not met. And what if we do have that bottom-up portfolio where valuation was seriously taken into consideration for each holding? There are still opportunities outside of the tech space that are down on a year-to-date basis, and I think that are legitimately undervalued. Does that immunize us from a big correction? Well, we have two recent examples of market crashes, the fourth quarter of 2018, and the February and March time period that just passed, where cheapness wasn't a protector of value, or at least market value in the short term, the cheap generally got even cheaper. So to a certain extent, almost everything gets pulled down, again, at least on a temporary basis, in a correction or market crash. This obviously created great opportunities with a small window in hindsight. Should I hold a lot of cash? Well, I don't have a prescribed answer, But I would say it is a good idea to hold at least some cash. Cash has powerful option value. Obviously, if the market corrects again, you will have dry powder and be able to take advantage of the situation. If you don't have any cash during a market swoon, then you have to sell something that is probably also down to buy your new idea. And so, of course, it is not as ideal as holding cash in that scenario. What I wouldn't do is drastically sell out of names I've done the homework on and believe will be great long-term compounders and that currently trade at reasonable valuations. What I've done is sell down a few holdings from a risk management standpoint because they had run up and sell out of one name where the fundamentals had deteriorated. One should always be cautious at any point of the cycle, but I believe that at this point, it is important to be extra cautious about allowing new ideas into your portfolio and making sure you feel comfortable about how the stock is priced against where you estimate intrinsic value, or in other words, what you estimate the business is worth. Thank you for listening. Follow, subscribe, like, and share with a friend. You can reach us at podcast at starvinecapital.com.